Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Valerie and I are preparing for this month's Patreon event on Tuesday, June 15th. So we thought we'd just run a best of show uh, featuring a show from uh, the last couple of years. So hope you enjoy and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 225. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. I'm back. Hello, Valerie. It's great to have you back. I'm super excited for today's show. We're going to be answering questions about microplastics in cosmetic products, metallic colorants in hair color, the best products to use when undergoing chemotherapy, and whether or not you should use expired sunscreens and more. We're going to do a rapid answer round to get through some of the questions that we've had from our consumers. Yeah, Valerie, I was looking... I was looking at our list of questions that have been submitted, and we have like a backlog of like 900 questions. (laughs) Although I have to say... We do prioritize people with uh, uh, audio questions, so if you're sending in an audio question, it's much more likely you're going to get on the show. Yeah, audio and Instagram, although I haven't been on Instagram lately. We'll talk about that in a second. But in addition to all these questions today, we are going to cover some beauty science news. Wow, this is a fully packed show. Fully, fully packed. Well, Perry, I, I've been a little in and out lately, and uh, thank you so much for doing the solo episodes. I... I told you last week, you know, I'm an, I miss everyone. Tell everyone hi uh, for me on the show. And uh, I'm, I'm a migrainer. I've suffered chronically from migraines my whole life. And as an adult, they've gotten incredibly bad. And I have a, a new set of neurological symptoms going on. And so I took this week off work uh, to help recover from it. I've had a ongoing episode for about three weeks now. And wow. today... I thought, you know, okay, I'm not doing any work. I'm relaxing. I'm going to go to the mall. We have a beautiful outdoor mall by my house in Los Angeles. And there's uh, an an organic taco restaurant that has California and Baja style tacos. (laughs) And I was like, I'm really craving these tacos. I'm going to go get some. So the mall is absolutely empty, which is awesome for parking, walking around, etc. And I, I went to go up up to the restaurant on the second deck and the up escalator was yeah. not only off but it was barricaded and i was like uh i i just want to go up i don't want to have to walk around and try to find another way up because then i don't know if i'll find my car and sure. i saw this gentleman breeze past me and he walked right up the down escalator and i was like wow that oh. looks really easy okay <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> well um, it turns out it wasn't as easy as it looked. And with uh, some of the neurological stuff I have going on, you know, the elevators have those like stripes on the steps. Yeah, sure. They're essentially like graded textured steps. Yeah. Well, it totally got me dizzy. And I was like tr- trying to go up these steps. and I got stuck in the middle. <laughs> I just kept oh, trying no. to go up. And I was like, what's happening? Because like I-, I had to focus on the steps so I could step on them. But then it was making me dizzy. And um, all these people were waiting at the top of the escalator. And I finally made, <laughs> made it up. And they're just like, are you all right? And I was like, whoa, that was hard. 
Uh, I don't know why I just didn't go down the escalator and like try a different route. I wouldn't let it go. I was like, I'm going to do this. Well, you were determined and it's good to hear you made it up the down escalator. I've been laughing hysterically for like two hours. I was like, that was so embarrassing. All these people were just waiting up there watching me. Probably like, what is this wacky lady doing? If only you would have Insta-storied it. I know, that would have been that would have been funny. Uh, oh, well. All right, should we move on to some beauty science news? Yeah, let's get started. Big episode today. I saw a company advertising, or, or there was a story about it. They were suggesting that coffee waste is going to be the next new hot ingredient. So this biotech company called Cafe Bueno, nice nice company name. <laughs> they're they're taking used coffee grounds and then they're squeezing out all this extra material and then they're saying that this is going to create an oil that's going to be a great new material and it's going to be great for anti-aging and for hair. Uh, they're saying this is the next ingredient that's going to replace argan oil or rosehip oil. Wow, yeah, I think I saw this article and I also saw an article about cherry waste this week. So I think waste from in different ingredients in the world being upcycled into cosmetic ingredients is going to be a huge trend that we'll continue to see. Well, you know, it used to be uh, a pretty common practice to upcycle ingredients like gelatin and hydrolyzed keratin. <laughs> but <laughs> tallow. once uh, yeah. people started to realize that uh, that's the upcycled for, from the meat industry, they're like, oh, let's not put that in our cosmetics anymore. <laughs> so instead of animal uh, ingredient waste, we're going to have plant ingredient waste. And here it is, here's coffee. There's, there's cherry blossoms. Um, now, I don't have any reason to believe that the ingredients that you're going to get sp from spent coffee grounds are going to do really anything special. I mean, no doubt the people selling this is, is are going to tell you they are, but I think you're probably going to get some nice emollient effect, and then maybe it's going to make your hair or skin feel nice. Uh, but to me, pretty much all those kinds of natural oils are, are, all kind of have the same feel to me. I know there are, you have your favorite oils and things, but uh, I, I have a hard time differentiating between any of these oils, right? It's the touch of my fine hands. I can just really discern a, a, a difference between all of the oils. But, you know, some people can't. I totally get it. Absolutely. Now, what I do find most interesting about this, however, is just the whole idea of using the waste product. Now, did you know that coffee is the second most traded com commodity after crude oil in the world? I would believe it. Actually, I think I learned that in that book that you recommended to me, uh, The History of the World in Six Drinks. Did you like it? Yeah, it was a fascinating book. And uh, yeah, I, I read through it while I was uh, in my travels the last uh, couple of weeks. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. So this book for every, for everyone who knows, by the way, I went on a bender and I read like five different books about coffee wow. just because I, I love coffee so much. And this world, uh, this book really talks about six beverages and how it really shaped and changed the direction of mankind. Uh, it's really interesting. Maybe we could post uh, a link to it in the show notes so you can uh, check it out from your local library or download an audiobook if that's your thing. It's, it's really a, a great listen or read. Yeah, it was uh, what beer, tea, coffee, spirits, uh, wine, wine, and co and Coca Cola. <laughs> so I, Coca Cola. Coke, <laughs> Coke must have had some sort of deal with the author. <laughs> anyway, um, 
but I think uh, anyway, I, I think of all those coffee grounds that just get thrown in the trash and it's a great idea to reuse them or upcycle them if we can. Well, I used to be a, a barista at Starbucks, Perry, a long time uh-huh. ago. Great company to work for, by the way. It was one of my favorite jobs. And we actually used to save the coffee grounds for people in the community okay. to pick up and use in their gardens. It's excellent uh, fertili- fertilizer for the plants. Sure. Also, I, I am surprised by the way that this company ha- is collecting these to to extract something out of them because coffee grounds, because of the water content that's still left in them actually go moldy pretty fast. So I would imagine that they would have to upcycle these spent coffee grounds pretty quickly. Yeah. After two days, you'll get mold in, in wet coffee if you're not careful. That is interesting. I I had not considered that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I was just thinking about it, you know, I'm not sure that talking about this as food waste is really a great marketing strategy. I mean, would you really want to use food waste in your product? I, you know, I personally don't care. I try to look at materials uh, like they're chemicals and they're all just kind of chemicals. But the fact that the ingredient was a wasted food product, I mean, it shouldn't matter, but I could see how people might want to avoid it. Yeah, it'd be different if it were waste from like the processing of coffees or the cherry from the coffee tree. That would be different. Whereas this is like, oh, let me collect or use grounds and like make an ingredient out of it. I think those are two different two different things. Yeah. Now the company has this vision of having coffee, uh, like a coffee ground processing plant, all over the world. And so then you can have local sources uh, that are all going to collect coffee grounds and they can make the materials there. Now the main problem with this, of course, is that it's going to be really difficult to get a consistent source material. You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to get consistency, right? No, not at all. So products made in one place, they're certainly not going to work the same as products produced in some other place. And I think it would be pretty hard to validate safety from batch to batch, too. So anyway, I I thought this was interesting. I encourage this type of innovation. And we'll see if coffee grounds will become the next big ingredient in coming years. I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah, that'll definitely be interesting. Well, I think uh, there was a Twitter debate that happened online this week about the difference between men's and women's products. I chimed in a bit on it as well with some of our cosmetic chemist colleagues uh, across the pond over in the UK about whether or not there is a need to have different products for men and women. Yeah, I mean, if you got to sort of parse this out in two things. The first is, is there like some biological reason that you need different products and the other one is is there some aesthetic reason that you need different products i think i think most people would agree that aesthetically of course they're uh, men sort of like certain smells that women and, and women women like other kinds of odors for example right uh that totally makes sense to me yeah, and I think that's where I weighed in a little bit too, because first it became, well, men and women, their skin has a different pH, and well, it's not really pH. You mentioned it's probably the isoelectric point of the skin. And yeah. then I chimed in and I was like, well, I don't know if they necessarily physically need different products for their different skins, but for me, it's an aesthetic issue, right? Like men can be very particular about the consistency of a product where women will use practically anything if it says it's going to work. So I took it from the second aspect of aesthetically men need different products. 
to make them more prone to use them. Yeah, and and I I agree with that too. Uh, like, you know, I'll I'll use whatever products around, but if there's a product that smells like baby powder flowers, uh, you know, I'm not as inclined to use that. Like, <laughs> although I have to say, in a pinch, when I run out of deodorant, I you know, I don't mind putting on my wife's secret <laughs> every so often. She doesn't like to have to pick all the hairs off of it, but you know, it's all <laughs> Don't share antiperspirants, people. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've had to do that in a pinch, too, and I think Mr. Cosmetic Chemist is the same as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, so at the end of the day, like, what came out of the argument? What were some of the other viewpoints? Well, I I took a look. It, this prompted me to go do a little research because, you know, I'm just shooting off the, off the hip uh, or off the cuff. <laughs> I guess it's either, right? I'm mixing my metaphors. Anyway, I didn't really know. I mean, are there really differences? I, I, you hear that all the time. So I looked in and I found a research article in the Journal of Dermatological Science uh, titled Gender-Linked Differences in Human Skin. And they this is a review article. It, it was uh, published way back in 2009, so, though, so it's it's been a while. But this kind of science doesn't go stale, I guess, right? There's, the biology of humans is... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So they looked at uh, a review of uh, just studies, and the results were that they say men and women's skin differ in hormone metabolism, hair growth, sweat rate, uh, sebum production, the surface pH, uh, fat accumulation, uh, and uh, those kinds of things. Um, I didn't see in this where they said, like, the thin, the the skin thickness was different, or, or things like that. Um, but in reading through this, what I what I realize is that they give an average uh, average score to the population. Say an average score to to a male population, average score to a female population, and they find differences there. But what they don't, but they but they, they don't point out is that's just the average. If you took like the whole population and looked at it. There's a lot of overlap that goes there, right? It's kind of like mm-hmm. saying, um, well, who's taller, men or women? I mean, if you took the average women height, they're going to be shorter than the average man height. But there are lots of women that are taller than lots of men, right? So I'm not mm-hmm. sure how I'm not sure how valuable this kind of research is, and it certainly doesn't say whether one certain man needs a product that's different than one certain woman because you don't know where you f- fall in the averages of things. And so in in my reading of this, I don't think you can just generally say some products are, from a biological standpoint, some products work better for men and some products work better for women. I just don't think it works that way. Aesthetically, I agree completely, but from what what technology, I I just couldn't see it. I think at least it doesn't work so differently that somebody would notice a difference. I think that's something we, a theme we continue to harp back on is, yeah, maybe scientifically there can be some demonstrated differences, but in real life, consumer use is a man or a woman going to notice a difference in using a product designed for one gender or the other. I don't know. That That's tough to say. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, I'm I'm curious what I'm curious what uh, our audience thinks about uh, whether men and women need different products. Uh, so let us know. We'll, yeah, we'll put an and Instagram we'll, we'll post up. I think. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. 
Well, let's get to some beauty questions. I think our first question is an audio question. All right, let me cue that up. This comes from Rachel. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Rachel from Hawaii. I love your show. Thank you so much for all the work you put into it so we can be more informed consumers. Anyways, my question is, what are your thoughts on microplastics in cosmetic formulations? The FDA website says that they are safe for human use, but what about the environment? So far, they've only banned them for rinse-off products, and I will admit the idea of eating plastic for my lipstick is a little bit concerning. But my gut says that the plastics are probably no more harmful to the environment than the plastics from the product's packaging. And thanks to your show, I know that if they were unsafe for humans, they wouldn't be in our products. So any thoughts on microplastics would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Wow, Rachel, great question. And I I think uh, there's some really important stuff we need to probably talk about before we answer the exact question that you have. Yeah, I'll say up front before getting into microplastics. Um, my general thought is that the cosmetic industry as a whole is unfairly maligned when it comes to mm-hmm. the impact on the environment. I mean, for for example, an article published in Nature suggested that personal care products contribute 4% of VOC pollution, and yet there's so much more regulations about uh, VO, VOC uh uh, regulations for cosmetics than they are for, say, like industry or car emissions. And there's also movements to restrict the use of certain sunscreen ingredients that might have an impact on coral reefs, when the reality is the major contributor to the damage of coral reefs uh, is the acidification of the oceans. It's it's not sunscreens. So people are always Whenever there's some environmental issue, one of the first places they go is the cosmetic industry. I think it might be because the cosmetic industry is looked at as kind of this frivolous thing, right? It's a it's a a product that you don't really need, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think it's kind of let me just say it's unfair. Well, if you said you're driving your car is causing environmental concern, you would be like, yeah, duh. Of course, I know that. If somebody said to you, did you know your face wash is causing environmental damage? It's a little bit like, what? I never thought about that. So I think part of it has to do with a little sensationalism and the something that people use every day. Everyone uses cosmetics every day or personal care products, whether it's toothpaste or lipstick. And so to say that that's causing some harm, you would think, oh, well, if it's, you know, if it's something I'm using and I'm putting it on me, it's bad for the environment. What I think that causes more of a headline than, um, you know, saying steel, steel factories cause environmental pollution. You know, it's kind of, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, it's just how, how it attracts the news. It, it does make for better headlines, I say. Now, so as far as microplastics go, um, in 2015, the U.S. passed a law banning microplastic beads in cosmetics, and in that law, they defined the term plastic microbead as any solid plastic particle that is less than 5 millimeters in size and is intended to be used to exfoliate or cleanse human, the human body or any part thereof. So this primarily refers to polyethylene beads And as far as safety goes, uh, the CIR determined that the use of polyethylene in cosmetics is safe for use at the levels that we typically use. So as far as safety goes, you don't really have to worry about uh, the kind of harm in using products with microbeads in them. 
But as far as the environment goes, you know, microplastics are generated from all kinds of products. The major contributors are car tires, uh, clothing fibers, outdoor paint, Mm -hmm. and then plastic pellets. And the plastic pellets, uh, some percentage of that is what's going to end up in your cosmetic products. Now, it's it's important to note that more than half of the microplastic pollution comes from car tires, and we're not really doing anything about that. Again, the cosmetic industry gets singled out, mostly because I think cosmetics are just looked at as these frivolous things that people could do without. And you think about cars and clothes, you're like, eh, you know, we, we can't go without cars and clothes. Maybe we could go without uh, an exfoliation body wash. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I remember one time being at a scientific meeting for the cosmetic sciences, and this was when the microbeads was a huge uh, thing that we were talking about. And it was really, really in the headlines every day. This was about 2016. And it was picking apart some of the studies that have been done because at the time, people weren't talking about microplastics coming from their clothing or coming from car tires. And I think the gentleman who presented an analysis of these studies being done, Dr. Lockhead uh, is a scientist in the cosmetics industry, a polymer chemist, and he was looking at all the studies being done on microbeads. And he showed this reference about the shipping industry using cleansers to clean Uh the ship decks and to clean the barnacles off of the ships. And those contain microplastics, yet nobody is looking at that industry for regulation in the microplastics that are being put directly in the ocean. So it's just interesting how people focus and create all this legislation. And in fact, people were talking about microbeads and cosmetics, and then there was this ripple effect of it being banned. But now that it's been banned, have we seen a reduction of plastics in the waterways? No, you have to look at everything as a whole. It's not just one industry. It's crazy. I, I would say, you know, it's a, it's a fair enough point that maybe microplastics don't need to be in cosmetics. And in my opinion, the little beads for exfoliating uh, or providing grit in toothpaste, they're not really going to have much functional impact beyond making consumers feel like they're working better. I, I'm unconvinced by evidence that um, uh, an exfoliator bead in a body wash actually has much impact. But I do want to add, uh, so, so getting rid of those from body wash it. I don't think that's that much of a big deal. But I do want to add that there are some environmental groups who mistakenly lump all polymers into the category of microplastics. They claim things like acrylic polymers, uh, carbomer, or styling resins like PVP are microplastics. These things are not microplastics. I mean, these are, when they break down their liquids, they're not solids. Uh, and there's no evidence that these things are building up in the environment and having a negative impact on wildlife or, or otherwise. Uh, you know, maybe they are, but I think there should really be more evidence than just the hypothesizing of these groups. Uh, there's a group called Plastic Soup, and they just are blanketly saying oh, consumers should just avoid things with carbomer, PVP, or other polymers in it. I think the cosmetics industry is such a small fraction of what's really happening. And are we saying you don't look at cosmetics? You know, it's so small, who cares? And you you can say, well, lots of things incrementally add up, right? No, I, I think we're saying we need to look at everything as a whole and not just target one area 
Um, I don't want people to think we're like, oh, we should put microplastics back or microbeads back in cosmetic products. I don't want people to think we're saying that. Um, but we're just saying the legislation didn't really help anything. I Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, while banning the plastic microbeads, you know, I don't think they're going to really have much impact on the cosmetics that you use. Uh, banning these cosmetic polymers would certainly radically change cosmetics for the worse. I mean, oh, yeah. hair styling products, conditioners, moisturizers, cleansers, makeup. I mean, all of these products that you know and love are formulated uh, with these kinds of polymers, and they'd have to be reformulated. And the reality is reformulated products that don't use these ingredients, they just don't work as good. Um, mm-hmm. if, these, if these polymers are really having a negative impact on the environment, uh, then certainly something should be done. But before radically altering the cosmetics that you use every day and making them worse, I think we really need more better research in this area. Exactly. Before we jump the gun, for sure. Our second question comes from Patty. She says, I've always used Preference by L'Oreal to color my hair and liked it until a friend told me that it might have metallic salts in it, so I should only use professional products. Now I can't find the right shade in the professional products. Can you tell me whether Preference by L'Oreal has metallic salts in it? I want my old hair color back. Hey, didn't we talk a little bit about metallic dyes back in episode 213? Uh, But I think it was in relation to eyelash coloring or something like that. How about this uh, dye from L'Oreal? Well, yes, we did. We covered uh, metallic dyes a little bit there. And this question from Patty actually is in good timing because I had someone message me on Instagram, Kitty Softpaws. And she Uh is a cosmetology student, and she said, we are starting to touch on hair color at school, and I would like to know how to spot metallic dyes on the shelf. Here is a snip of our textbook. I'm worried about the part that talks about the bad reaction if hydrogen peroxide is used. And the text snapshot that she sent me says, metallic hair colors are known as progressive hair colors and are comprised of metal salts that change the hair color gradually by progressive buildup and exposure to air, creating a dull metallic appearance. These products require frequent applications and historically have been marketed to men. The main problems are unnatural looking colors with limited range of colors available. Metallic hair dyes also restrict the application of any chemical service being done to the hair. And then below that text, there's a warning. Warning, do not use oxidizing hair color or hair color with hydrogen peroxide on hair that has been treated with metallic hair color. If you do, the hair will swell appear to be boiling. So what is the big deal about metallic dyes? So metallic colorants are known as progressive colorants. They exist as what we call metallic salts or metal salts, and you can find them on labels as lead acetate, manganese gluconate. You may also find iron or um, other lead salts, uh, aluminum even, silver. And what these do is uh, they go into the hair fiber and then with exposure to air, they oxidize. And when things oxidize, they get tarnished and they they darken. And that's how these colorants work. They're not typically used too much anymore. So Patty, uh, preference by L'Oreal, I don't think you have to worry about metallic salts being present. To my knowledge, that's a home hair color line that uses oxidative dyes, which, uh, you know, require hydrogen peroxide to develop. They're not these metallic salts, uh, so you don't have to worry. Um, the thing about these uh, colorants is if you're, 
if they're all that you're using, it should be fine. Yeah, are you going to look a little uh, heavy and dusty and inky because you're just depositing, depositing, and continuing to oxidize? Uh, sure, but yeah. the problem is when you go to put conventional hair color on top of it with hydrogen peroxide, and hydrogen peroxide is catalyzed by metals. So if you have these metals from the metallic salts in your hair, and then you're putting hydrogen peroxide on top of it, you'll have an extremely fast reaction that is exothermic, meaning it generates lots of heat. And that's where you can potentially burn uh, your skin or burn the skin of your guest when doing that. So um, it's hard to identify metallic dyes on the hair. Uh, the best thing to do is have a consultation and dialogue with your client uh, to get them to, we'll call it, fess up to using it or disclose that they've used it. Um, but on the shelf, you would typically see the names of metals like lead, iron, silver, aluminum, manganese, uh, etc. So, and maybe like uh, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin too, right there. <laughs> All right, up to the next question. Valerie, you know we have a Facebook page. I have I have actually cut down way down on my Facebook stuff. It was just making me way too annoyed or depressed. <laughs> just where the country's going. I, I needed a break. <laughs> but so so I apologize if we haven't uh, gotten to Facebook messages. But we did get one. I I, I checked in. We got one from Shauna. Uh, and she said, hi, Valerie and Perry. Thank you for keeping the podcast going during the current difficult times. Here's my question. I'm about to lose my hair due to chemo. Do you have any suggestion for taking care of my scalp in a way that gives my hair, once it starts growing again, the best chance to be healthy looking? Thanks for all you do. Well, thanks for that, Shauna. Yeah, th this is a question I get a whole lot. Oh. And... Yeah, it, people do ask this question a lot. And I do want to say we're not medical doctors, so I, I think it's most important that you consult with your oncologist to see the best recommendations that they have. Yeah. But the good news is that, uh, you know, when you're going through chemo and your hair falls out, um, once the last chemo treatment is given, your hair will immediately start to rego. It can come in frizzy or curly and in patches at first, but it typically returns to the original texture over time. The most important thing as you're going through chemo and after chemo is to keep the scalp clean. And you can do that with a pretty much any shampoo that you feel comfortable using. Most importantly, avoid any conditioners or styling product application directly on the scalp. The only thing you really want to be putting on the scalp um, is shampoo and then rinsing it. Yeah. It's not just hair on your head that you lose. Most chemo patients also lose eyelashes. And I have a, a colleague of mine who uh, provided this advice to me, by the way. Wow. Um, she she has uh, gone through and recovered from cancer. So uh, she said this can be very painful as the eyelashes begin to regrow. And a very warm compress several times a day helps relieve the itching. And that will help keep your fingers um, out of your eyes and allegedly encourage faster regrowth. And, you know, chemo is incredibly hard on the body. It's very hard, uh, you know, to lose your hair. Hair has so many uh, different implications in our culture and in how we go out and, and face the day and face the world. But rest assured, everything will gradually return along with your strength and energy. And pretty soon you will have your whole body, mind and spirit back. 
it's a hard thing to go through, but fortunately, more and more people are uh, coming through and being uh, uh, free of cancer. So that's that's good. But uh, yeah. hopefully, hopefully uh, your hair uh, comes back nice and strong. All right, our next question. Janelle wants to know, how do oil-based foundations, for example, Kosas, RMS Beauty, etc., affect an underlying sunscreen, uh, a mineral sunscreen in this case? I've emailed each company but cannot get a satisfying answer. Kosas says research suggests their foundation actually assists in sun protection, but I feel skeptical about that. After all, I use oil to remove my sunscreen. So what's the deal with sunscreens and foundations? One of the things that you have to understand about sunscreens is how they work first. Uh, A sunscreen, when you put it on, it forms a film on your skin. And then the sunscreen active uh, will sort of reside in that film. And it needs to be a continuous film uh, to continue to work. And so when you put the sunscreen on, uh, you've got that nice film. Uh, and for some of the sunscreen actives, they will actually penetrate into the stratum corneum to some extent. And so stuff that you put on top is not going to disrupt it very much. Other sunscreens, say your zinc oxides, aren't going to penetrate as much. And so those actually might uh, be disrupted by what you're using. So in this case, you're using a mineral sunscreen. So that's the zinc oxide, titanium mm-hmm. dioxide. So when you're putting on a foundation, an oil-based foundation like this, it certainly could disrupt the sunscreen film. There, it's, it's probably a low probability problem. You might not even notice, you know, you might not get a sunscreen. This idea that uh, their product is actually assisting with sun protection, um, I could actually see a, a rationale for that. Um, and that's probably because the foundation has titanium dioxide in it, and titanium dioxide is a sunscreen ingredient. Um, but it doesn't work as well as a sunscreen, so I'm, I'd also be skeptical that it's actually assisting. I, I don't know. What do you think, Valerie? Yeah, I, I, I think what they're trying to say is, you know, with foundations, you do have some titanium dioxide that offers the, the white pigmentation or the lightness of a foundation, you also have three other pigments present, red iron oxide, yellow iron oxide, and black iron oxide. And those four colors combined create various skin tones. And so the ratios at which you use titanium dioxide versus the black affect how light or dark it is, and the yellow and the red affect you know, what tone in the spectrum that you hit. So formulators play with those four colors as ratios. And they all really work by forming a layer over the skin. And so I think COSAS is suggesting that their foundation assists in some protection that way. Of course, I don't think they have SPF testing. It's very difficult to do that with foundation. It's very expensive just given the number of shades a range may have. But I think they're saying, okay, this foundation is forming a a physical layer over the skin yeah. to either conceal the skin or provide a, a new tone to it. And so it's assisting in some protection that way. I don't think it's really working synergistically with the sunscreen that you already have on your skin. Right. I think it's more or less just the f- way in which foundations work. I don't think it's unique to Kosas. That's just you have a physical particle sitting on your skin. It's going to deflect or block 
a UV ray from hitting your skin. I think that's how they're saying it's working. Yeah, to some extent. So is this something that people need to be worried about? Uh, I don't think in practice you're going to notice uh, much difference whether you use a foundation on there with the sunscreen or or not. Uh, I mean, you should use the sunscreen either way. I don't think that it's going to really significantly interfere uh, but but it it certainly could. It certainly could disrupt uh, the areas uh, of sunscreen and give you a lower SPF uh, protection in the areas where you put the foundation on. Uh, but I don't really think it's a thing you need to worry too much about. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. Which leads us to our next question. Would you worry about using expired sunscreen? Well, expired sunscreen. Actually, you know, I, uh, I, ha- I, I use sunscreen when I go golfing. And I was, I just for the first time in months, uh, got to go golfing because they opened up the courses. And in you must have just used it on your face because the rest <laughs> of you is tan. <laughs> well, that's right. In my bag, there was a sunscreen. It was an old sunscreen, and it was so old that it had separated already. And I had to like shake it up and try to squeeze it on. And I'm like, this isn't really working. So, no, I I don't think you should probably use expired sunscreens. Yeah, so this question comes to us from Nicole um, in Chicago, actually. And this was one of the questions she had. So a sunscreen is actually the one cosmetic I probably would not use past expiration unless, and I've I've used expired sunscreen before, I'm already out in a situation and I have nothing else. And I'm like, well, it's probably better than nothing. But let me tell you why I would not use something there. I mean, there's a reason sunscreens have an expiration date. And in the case of sunscreens, they're regulated as over-the-counter drugs in the U.S. And they have to go through testing before they go to market to show over the course of time, instability of the product is the active, the sunscreen active that you put in there. Is it at the level you're advertising? Because that level that you're advertising affords the SPF factor yeah. that the, the sunscreen is proven to work at. So once you're past the expiration date, that could mean two things. One, they don't have the data, right? They don't know if the active is going to remain at that level. Right. Who knows? And the second thing is it maybe does not stay at that level. The active level might drop or deteriorate in the formula somehow. Maybe the formula separates and you you don't get it. So um, those are the two ways in which, A, there's the unknown, and B, there's the known. And as a consumer, you don't know that. You just know, hey, this expiration date is on there, and I shouldn't use it after that. The other thing, and Perry mentioned it in the previous question, was that sunscreens, they rely on film formation for efficacy. That's one of the ways that you can boost SPF value is have really good film formation on the skin so that it's even and UV UV rays can't penetrate. Or if it's uneven and splotchy film formation, you'll get, you know, burned on some parts and not others. So film formation is critical. And sunscreens are emulsions. Emulsions destabilize over time, kind of like if you have a salad dressing um, in the door of your refrigerator for a really long time, you forgot about it and you go back and it's separated. That happens with lotions, sunscreens, hair conditioners. It can happen with shampoos. Products left in Um, your golf bag, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So not only um, do you have the sunscreen active in there, you're relying on the emulsion that the sunscreen is made into to form this even film over the skin. And if the emulsion has destabilized past the expiration date, 
you may not have that film formation that's super critical in in providing the sun protection factor. So um, you could you could do it like Perry. Hey, you're in a pinch. Shake it up. Try to get the you know it mixed back together and apply it. Um, you know if you're in a pinch. But if you are planning and you're like, oh, I have this expired sunscreen, I would probably just buy a new sunscreen. Yeah. I don't think you could be physically harmed. Um, but who knows? I would just uh, toss it and uh, replace it. The, the harm is that it, it if it's labeled like SPF 30, it's probably not going to be SPF 30 if it's past the expiration date. Um, hey, there was another one on Facebook. Let's uh, knock this one out. I know uh, I know we've kind of answered something like this before, but Annie asks, are hennas safe for your hair, and are they safer than box dye? Uh, we covered henna coloring extensively in episode 189, so I'd suggest you go back to that. But Valerie, why don't you take us through uh, this answer about henna? Yeah, henna is totally safe to use uh, when you're using a henna that is not full of heavy metals. Oh. Going back to the heavy <laughs> heavy metal conversation, I love how every question today is is super linked together. And sure. it's, it's totally a coincidence, but. Um, yeah, so henna can be used safely. It's not going to harm your hair. Uh, you can get great natural looking results with it. There are a lot of really experienced people who can color even gray hair with henna. It's pretty incredible. But the challenge with henna is it is a natural plant. It is excellent at taking up metals in the environment that are naturally found in the soil um, that naturally pass over the land through weathering and whatnot. And if the heavy metals are present and you decide you don't want to use henna on your hair anymore, and you go back to conventional hair color, which uses hydrogen peroxide, those metals that are in the hair, they're locked in there. They don't want to come out, right? They're going to react yeah. with the hydrogen peroxide, create that exothermic reaction, which generates lots of heat, and you have the potential to injure yourself or melt off your hair, Ugh. or whatnot. So the danger is not in using henna on its own. Um, again, you could, you probably could be allergic to henna, just like you could be allergic to bauxite. But the danger is when you don't want to use henna anymore and you want to get it out of the hair. Uh -huh. If heavy metals are present in the henna, you can be in big trouble. And unfortunately, there is no way to know the, the quality of henna that you're purchasing. There's just no way to know. Yeah, so it's a challenge. Yeah. And our last question comes from Laura, another hair question. She wants to know, why does dark hair stay red after bleaching? Does that happen? Yeah, it can. Yeah. So hair has two dominant types of pigments present in it. One is eumelanin, which is responsible for brown to black pigmentation of hair. And the other is pheomelanin, which is responsible for this yellowish to red pigment in the hair. And all hair types, for the most part, have some levels of both in it. Redheads yeah. obviously have more pheomelanin than eumelanin. Somebody who's a dark brunette like myself, I have lots of pheomelanin, but I also have lots of eumelanin on top of it. Although I will suggest that gray hair doesn't have any of those. So that's why gray hair oh, is gray. Well, that's hair. true. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's colorless, right? So when you are lightening your hair, you are essentially degrading the eumelanin and pheomelanin pigments. The challenge is eumelanin is really reactive and susceptible to the ingredients that are used in bleaching, and it degrades very quickly. Mm -hmm. Eumelanin is found in these little granules in the hair fiber. I always imagine it being like cookie crisp cereal, and you have these like little chocolate chips of eumelanin sure, throughout sure. the hair fiber. Those 
degrade pretty readily. Pheomelanin is more diffused throughout the whole hair fiber, and it has a, a sulfur molecule in it. And uh-huh. some re- research has shown it degrades faster than eumelanin, but I think it's more it's more stable, or at least it's in parts of hair that the bleach cannot get to. And so after you remove all this brown to black pigment, eumelanin, you're left with the red pigment. So the darker your hair is, the more ah. pheomelanin you have, so the more reddish it's going to look. If your hair sure, is already sure. relatively blonde or, or like a very light brown, you can get some of that eumelanin removed quickly and then you don't have a whole lot of pheomelanin left so your hair is lighter blonde. Whereas if you you have black hair, you have so much pheomelanin already that you're going to stay at that stubborn reddish stage. And if you're in the cosmetology world or you're a salon stylist, you know this as dominant pigment. It's the pigment that's left in the hair after bleaching. And you learn color theory as a cosmetologist to understand, okay, if you have red, how do I counteract the red to get a more natural looking result? And that's just the basic premises of color theory. The pigment is just more stable than uh, than the other one. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think anyway. Well, that was <laughs> a big right. show. Yeah, seven questions. Wow. Whoa. Woo-wee. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, if you get a chance, can you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? That will help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer in an upcoming show. Incidentally, if you want to have a question answered on The Beauty Brains, just record it on your smartphone, then send it an email to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Or you can send us a message through our various social media accounts. Yeah, on Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And, as you've heard, we have a Facebook page. Do we have anything else? No, that, I think that's it for now. Huh? Oh. <laughs> All right, everyone. Wait. Thanks again wait, for did, listening. Did, oh. we, did we start a TikTok page? <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I, I downloaded TikTok. Yeah. I don't know how to use it yet. But anyway, oh thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens. <laughs>